You're listening to author Sue Brain, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to this third series of Embracing Your Mortality. Yet again, I've got a great lineup of guests, all of whom put living consciously for a better world at the heart of what they do. The aim of this third series is to gather together leading thinkers, scientists and sages to explore why engaging with our mortality matters. We don't know when we will die, but it's sure that we will. So, so better prepare every day of your life. They include death doulas, the most fun funeral director in existence, a leading scientist in consciousness. We can be very self-centered. But if you're going to die, well, then these things don't matter so much. And what it means to provide alternative support around death and dying. We want it to be something that can reach as many people as possible. And for people as well to be able to explore what spirituality means to them. And if you haven't already, don't forget to listen to the first two series of Embracing Your Mortality. Links to my guests in both series can be found on my website, suebrain.co.uk. Even though we're going through increasingly challenging times, I hope all these conversations from all three series inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. Ken Ross is an acclaimed nature photographer and the son of Elizabeth Cooper Ross. He is the founder and current president of the EKR Foundation and was his mother's principal care provider during the last nine years of her life. He talks about his mother's work, his own work with the EKR Foundation and what it was like to grow up as the son of the famous death doctor. When my mom was writing her first book, obviously, she got a tremendous amount of, you know, interest from around first the city and then the region and then the country and then the world. And so she began traveling. So from the time I was nine years old, she was traveling constantly mm. and she would let me go through her calendar up to two years up and pick any place in the world to travel to. And I would do it probably like once every season. I'd go on a big international trip somewhere. And then when I got out of college, I became a photographer and I was traveling and I would try to, you know, meet up with my mom when she was on her lecture trips. So mm. and we got together in maybe 20 different countries around the world, you know, and then I was doing my thing. And then she eventually ended up in Virginia and I could see there were some problems. There was a lot of hostility from the locals. Yeah. This was the so, days when the AIDS, ba- she was looking after the AIDS babies. Right. Right. The AIDS thing was happening. And so she was trying to find homes for AIDS babies. And she was very successful. She got homes for hundreds of AIDS babies. However, there was so many she couldn't keep up. And so she thought, well, I'll just bring them to my farm, you know, and so the locals didn't like that. And so I was brought on to the board of directors because I could see there was a number of problems. So that was my first official entrance into her work. And then from there, you know, her house was burnt down, as you probably heard. Yeah. 1995. So I moved her down to Arizona. I took care of her for nine years. And after she died, I thought, well, you know what? I really need to start a foundation to continue her work. So many people write every day from around the world. Mm. I'm going to start a foundation. I'm going to let them do all the work and I'll be go back to my photography. (laughs) And that never happens. (laughs) 
I mean, I would imagine for you, growing up with a mum away all the time must have had a profound impact on you. It did in some ways, but I think I was kind of built for it because I was a bit of a loner and was very quiet, very shy, and I was totally happy just playing in my room with my Legos or trains or whatever. And I really feel to this day, it didn't really bother me. And then when I was traveling with my mother, we had these amazing adventures. So, you know, it wasn't so much about the quantity, but the quality was amazing. Yeah. So that made up for the quantity. I mean, I think it bothered my sister more. You know, we mm. got through it. Our parents were unusual and we had lots of amazing adventures. We were always going to either New York or LA to see the relatives or Switzerland to see the family, or we could travel anywhere in the world on our, on our calendar. So yeah, I thought that was a pretty good deal. <laughs> so. Did it teach you about loss and grief at all, do you think, yeah, having it, this separation? Yeah, it did, but it took me a while to digest it, right? Like, you know, you read a book, you get any new information, especially big information, and it takes a while to digest. So mm. we had two parents who were both doctors, two brilliant doctors, but they were always talking about death. And so my sister and I were really freaked out about death, you know, for the first couple of years because we heard too much about it. You know, it wasn't introduced like it with a dropper. It was <laughs> introduced with a tidal wave like every week. You know, we're meeting dying people and they're in our house and we're going to hospitals and I'm going to my father's hospital and picking up human brains for him to deliver them to other hospitals and going to see him do brain autopsies. And it did digest well eventually, but it took a while. Early on, did it sort of fill you with sort of dread and horror or were you just sort of overwhelmed or shocked or numbed or what was going on for you? Well, we were definitely like a bit neurotic, I think, at least I speak for myself. I was neurotic and any little thing on my arm or bump or, oh, my God, I'm dying of some big word I can't understand. You know? you know, and I thought, wow, life is really short and precarious. Like, I've got to go out there and do something amazing really quickly because I could drop dead at any moment. Did you sort of feel pressurized to go and live life because of it? You know, my parents never force fed me stuff, but they definitely like to expose us. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> Kenneth, why do I go to a hospice? And yeah, a little field trip to a hospice. Let's go see, you know, this fortune teller or this uh, Zulu tribesman or, you know, but it was funny. And, and, you know, she was like a real hippie in the 70s. So I was like, oh, yeah. wow, mom's pretty cool. She like follows all this hippie stuff. Yeah, to be a child of a, of a, of a hippie, especially a mum like yours, blimey, that must yeah. have been quite an experience on lots of different levels. It's embarrassing too, I have to say, because, you know, she was on the cover of Playboy and People and the National Enquirer and all these, you know, trashy magazines because they love yeah. to talk about her and the spooks and the spirits and all that stuff. And so it was embarrassing for a person who didn't want any attention they have all your friends saying, oh, your mom's on the cover of, you know, X, Y, Z. I mean, her belief in the spirits and the spooks, do you share that with her or have you come to any sort of understanding about it or do you think, oh, it's not for me? Well, I have a couple of different beliefs about that. Um, I went to see a kinesiologist who did a reading on me and a great kinesiologist, really, this guy picked up stuff like no one else has ever picked up. And he asked me a couple of questions and then he did the testing, you know, with the arm. And, you know, he goes, okay, you're mad at your mother, nothing. Uh, you're mad at your father, nothing. He goes, uh, you're very much like your father and you're going to have six heart attacks. And, you know, the arms started shaking and I started shaking. And he's like, okay, and you love both your parents, um, but you're torn between them. So the arm is shaking. 
So I go, okay, this is a story. It's like, you've been programmed to think you're your father who has six heart attacks. So one, you got to get rid of that because that's going to bring you down eventually. Mm. And then number two, you totally love both your parents. You totally respect them. But each one had absolutely opposite thoughts about life after death. You know, your father was like this famous brain surgeon. He knew his stuff, you know, he was a scientist, right? And, but he did not believe in life after death because he had a Jewish background, you know, and your mother, absolutely no question, there's life after death. And so you're kind of torn between your two parents. And I thought, you know what, that's probably pretty good. My own theory, which doesn't negate, you know, my mother's work or father's beliefs or anything is I was brought up just to accept anything that is natural, anything I can control is totally fine. Mm. So I do not have any fear, worry about dying. Is there a life after death? I'm like a thousand percent. You know, whatever is, is. And that's beautiful Mm. because that's nature and that's God and that's the world and that's spiritualism. And whatever is, I embrace it fully. The only things I fear are the things I can control, can control rather, and what I can control is how I live my life. So my mm. fear is like not living my life fully. So I really want to go out there and really don't waste this beautiful opportunity. I want to go out and be a little crazy, challenge mm. myself, challenge my fears, break out of the box. You know, so that's why mm. I became a travel photographer and do crazy things like hanging out of helicopters and going to remote tribal peoples, you know, and things that are a little far out and dangerous, but they've really enhanced my life. But obviously, you know, I saw a lot of interesting, funky, wild things growing up that have no rational explanation. <laughs> so, you know, I saw tables <laughs> floating and like talking to us. I totally don't reject any of that. And uh, yeah, there probably is life after death and it's probably reincarnation. But in the small percent chance there's not, that's fine too. So what you're and, saying is it's this life that matters because that's the only right, one right we've now, got today, this time around. Yeah, today is all that matters. Today is it. Yeah. Today I'm going to smile and I'm going to, you know, reach out and show my love to the world and to people yeah. and try to do something and make the world a better place. I read that you have had a heart attack. Is that right? Two. 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 <laughs> Not six like your dad. That's good. Not yet. No. <laughs> I had one at 42 like my dad um, on an airplane over Mexico. So that was exciting. And then I had one at 54. Did you have any out-of-body experiences when you had these heart Mm. attacks? Or was it just a a real Mm. physical experience for you? (laughs) You might like this answer. So I'm I'm laying on the ground. The plane landed. My friend picked me up. He took me to the ambulance station of the airport. I'm laying on the ground. And there's this unbelievable pain in my chest, like a burning, you know, ember of fire in my chest. And I'm certain I was about to die any second. And the only thing I could think of was, oh, my God, my poor sister has to deal with all mom's crap, the business world and all the people hassling her and cheating her. That's the only thought I had. So that was a pure test of like, do you have a fear of death? So like, wow, I passed that test. (laughs) I was close to death, but I wasn't like leaving my body. I thought I was about to die, but I didn't really Mm -hmm. like my heart didn't stop. But I was certain it was going to happen. But I had no fear at all. I was just like, oh my God, poor Barbara. Like, <laughs> and the second time? It was a pain, but I, you know, within about 16 hours, I felt better. It was a smaller heart attack, but the first one was like really big. I probably should have died, but that was lucky because it was in a small town in Mexico. And they just built a new heart institute for Americans. It just opened up. So they said, if you'd 
been here last Sunday, you would have been dead. I mean, the chances were like a thousand to one that I'd survive. Does that make you think about synchronicities or coincidences or being being looked after by something, somebody else? I'm looked after for sure. (laughs) I know when I follow my path, I have incredible luck and it happens very often. And people, my friends all talk about it like, wow, you are just crazy though. The luck you have when you travel. So I know that's like my path. Like, you know, I I buy a one-way ticket someplace and then crazy good things happen. Do you know who it is that's looking after you? Or do you feel, well, I don't know, it's a presence or? It happened before my mom passed. So I think it's the the whole team up there. (laughs) Do you think she's on the team? Yeah, we are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel she's ever appeared to in dreams or she's ever appeared to you? I have a drum set. And, you know, my mother was a real practical joker. And so she'd all like really want to zing me like the best way she could. So uh, for the, about the first year after she died, every, not every time, but whenever I was bending over, I was always bending over to tie my shoes. So I was more vulnerable. My snare drum would hit just once by itself. And I was all alone in the house and it would scare the bajukas out of me. But it was also as I was bending over, like, you know, really, when I was like, really be shocked. <laughs> and it happened about like five times. I was like, mom, stop that. You can give me another heart attack. (laughs) I wonder if they're laughing. Yeah, she's got a cigarette in one hand and a chocolate (laughs) and a cup of English breakfast tea. Tell me a little bit more about the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, because, you know, it was my first introduction to any form of self-healing. And Mm -hmm. I remember going to Vashon Island and thinking, oh, it's just going to be such a lovely time being taught on a blackboard. And no, it was on the mattress with a bat. (laughs) (laughs) Sit back in a lounge chair and have some tea. (laughs) I seriously (laughs) thought, I think there's two English people there. And I can remember being horrified. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my introduction to your mum's teaching. Seven days of being on a mattress, screaming, shouting, hitting telephone books with a bat, releasing the rage and the shame and the guilt, right. which I found really challenging. <laughs> Again, yes. being British, the Americans took to it like a duck to water. Oh, yes, yes. The, us two Brits did not. Mm. It was a cultural <laughs> thing. <laughs> so tell me what's, what sort of happened mm. since those days. How has it all progressed since then? You know, my last nine years of my mom's life, she, she was active to some degree, even though she said she sat around like a zombie. You know, she wrote four books. She went to Europe a few times. She did loads of interviews. She went to New York City to see the World Trade Center uh, disaster site for Time Magazine. So she was active. But for her, that was like, you know, so little. Like, you know, she was bored and frustrated. Oprah came down to interview her and she had people from around the world come to see her, but she was still bored. So Sometimes she was angry and she'd express that in the press. And so I feel I need to go back and kind of clean up her message. I don't want to blast the press too much, but I mean, you know, I, I see things in the press every day and so much of it is rubbish. Like it's yeah. a sensationalistic, the way her work is portrayed is just, you know, ridiculous. Sometimes people still need her work. I mean, there was only one Elizabeth and she was going to all these countries, you know, she could only get so far. But we're left with, you know, all of our books and tapes and videos and writings and so forth. A few months after my mom passed or died, some people don't like that word passed. I got a call from these Mexican ladies and they said, well, we just read your mother's book and we'd love to come see the foundation. I'm like, oh, well, I don't really have a foundation. They're like, oh, well, you should. Can we come to visit you? I'm like, yeah, come. You know, I was 
brought up very laissez-faire, you know, just embrace chance. So these three ladies I didn't know came up and stayed with me for a couple of days. And we just, you know, I said, yeah, go back to Mexico and start a foundation. They said, oh, well, do you have a contract? I'm like, nope, just go do it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm very easygoing like my mother. So, you know, these ladies are still working like 16 years later, doing great work in Mexico. And then um, a woman showed up from Bombay, flew all the way from Bombay to see my mother, to talk to her about how to start a hospice. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. She just died, like literally this last week. She's like, wow, like I flew a long way. What do you think I should do? I go, well, why don't I bring you to the room where mom died? And maybe you can get like a sense of her spirit still. You can touch her clothing. We can go over her books and just talk. And she said after a few hours, you know what? I really feel your mom's presence. And this is enough of an inspiration to go back and, and start this hospice in Bombay. I'm like, wow, you know, my mom has so much power still, just her legacy mm-hmm. and her teachings. So from those two experiences, I really decided we need to start a foundation. And I had no idea how to start a foundation. And still some days it's a mystery to me. You know, I didn't really <laughs> know how to work with a board of directors, how to form one. So that's one of my weaknesses. But, you know, I've been doing it now 16 years. The last three years, I think it's really picked up. I thought we really need to start other groups around the world. So we started groups in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Uruguay, Peru, uh, Guatemala, Mexico. We have a couple in Europe, in Japan. And so they do anything related to hospice, uh, end of life, grief, palliative care, anything like that would be in the vein of what my mom would do. So they give classes, they do advocacy, translate my mother's work into other languages so that people can read her work in their own language, which is a big problem. And we've started a YouTube page and that we have closed mm-hmm. captions so that people can see mom speaking in Spanish and Finnish and Thai. <laughs> and so we just go out and disseminate mom's work and legacy. And we've just given all mom's work to Stanford University. So they're going to be building a digital library. Mm-hmm. And we have these international groups. And now we're developing our education programs. We're going to have an online education program that you can take whenever you feel like it. Uh, we'll have about 25 classes, different topics that my mom worked on. Uh, you know, my mom's often defined by the five stages, but, you know, she talked about externalization, countertransference, yeah. uh, living your life love-based, unconditional love, learning to identify symbolic, verbal, and nonverbal language. There's a lot of different mm-hmm. topics my mom really excelled in, and we want to let people know that, you know, this is mm-hmm. part of her legacy and her work. Obviously, that's what was vaguely covered with the uh, Life, Death and Transition workshop that I went to. And then I carried on doing the training in England, actually. Does the Elizabeth Cooper Roche Foundation include that as well as workshops, which are much more traditional learning sessions, shall we say? Right. The only place we do that is in Japan because they were trained by my mother. But I'm a little hesitant to do workshops without my mother training the people like, yeah. or training the trainers, at least. Uh, that staff still is doing some of the workshops. Uh, there's uh, a website called the externalizationworkshops.com. And you can see the whole list of all the former staff and what they're doing now. And they're doing a lot of workshops. So we just mm. kind of leave that to them because they were trained largely by Elizabeth. This misreporting about um, her five stages of, of grief, the grief model, it really irritated me as well because it obviously wasn't she didn't mean it like that, but it was taken out of context. That sensationalized popular grief. media, yeah, yeah, media. I mean, where do you, where are you going with that now? 
you know, I read all the criticisms typically follow a few different categories. One, they say grief is complex, so therefore there can't be five stages. And I say, no, 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 that's totally ironic you say that because that's exactly what she was saying at a time when grief was this monolithic thing. Elizabeth broke it down and said grief is complex. Grief is made up of the five stages plus preparatory grief, shock, partial denial, dreams, hope, anxiety, guilt. I mean, all that is in On Death and Dying if people read the book, but they don't. They just, you know, they see The Simpsons and a few other TV shows and they think they're experts on the five stages. So what she was saying is that grief is complex. That's exactly what she's saying. So (laughs) please don't say it can't exist because grief is complex. That's like she was the first person to say it. And, you know, that was a simplified model, of course. She said it was composed of many emotions, but these are five typical ones that people go through. Um, And then we fight the idea that it's linear because we have many quotes of my mom saying the five stages are not meant to be linear, or you can go through multiple ones at once, or you can not go through any of them. I'm just saying I'm developing a language that we can use that's simple and easy to remember so that we can begin having an intelligent discussion about grief. It's not meant to be the only model or the only way people grieve, but it's a simple way just to begin a conversation. That's a good way to kind of put down the naysayers, you know, who say there's no stages. I'm like, well, sometimes there's no stages, but you can't say there's nobody has a five stages because there's tens of thousands of articles by people who had the five stages or, or got some learning through it, whatever it was, maybe it wasn't the five, they had six or 10, or, you know, it gave them other ideas that helped them assimilate their grief. And the other thing that she used to talk about was, you know, the importance of doing your own work, you know, so that you stood a chance at least making peace with yourself and in, in quotations, have a good death. And I'm very curious about this whole concept of what a, a good death really means in this context. So Elizabeth would say the main reason that people are afraid to die is because they were afraid to live. They haven't lived fully. And so they realize they've wasted this beautiful gift. So she says, you know, we've got to take care of our own unfinished business now, right? Whatever it is, you know, Mm. find balance, deal with the, you know, the four quadrants, deal with your emotional and intellectual and spiritual and physical sides, find balance. Mm. And if you live fully, you can die at peace because you'll have, you know, use this gift. A good death follows a good life, right? So just go out there and, you know, externalize, participate, work on yourself, work on your grief, work on your life. Yeah. I mean, just live fully, focus on externalization, embracing unconditional love and just let death take care of itself, I guess. So if you don't want to work work on a good death, work on the good life and it'll just follow naturally. And I'm just wondering about where, where you think, you know, the whole pandemic and, and um, obviously you've been having it in, uh, experiencing differently in the States than we have been in the U- UK. Every country's been doing it differently. But how do you feel it's impacted people's relationship with death and dying? Yeah, my mother would say it's good in some ways because it forces people to face their death. Um, however, of course, you know, it doesn't give people time to prepare. And that's the whole problem with life in general is that we rarely prepare for our death. And so when people are forced to look death in the face, they don't like it. And they don't like what they see in themselves. It's the whole thing. It it tips the whole balance of, you know, people have this false sense of security that they're going to live forever 
or death is it's not going to touch them because they're young or youngish or younger or whatever. But, you know, it's a false illusion. It could touch any of us any day. But many people have this little illusion, this little bubble around themselves to protect them. And so mm-hmm. when the bubble is burst, then you know, people start getting you know, acting up and anger comes out and hostility and, you know, political stuff comes out and <clears throat> attacks on science and all this craziness is, is part of this fear. Our relationship with death is, is, is what it is, isn't it? But it's sort of, it's this fueling the fear of the way we're going to die, which isn't very pleasant if you get COVID. Certainly the pictures in the, in the news for us is being people on respirators in, in hospitals, not being allowed to be visited by their parents or their children or their grandchildren or whatever it is. This is totally confuses the model that you're, uh, that Elizabeth created, which was, you know, death is a process. And then, you, you know, and let's try and get the process right. And then you can die as comfortably and as peacefully as you possibly can. And that seems to be ripped away with a lot right. of people who've died from COVID. Right. Yeah. It's breaking traditions. It's breaking, you know, the path you thought, well, at least I'll be able to say goodbye and hold yeah. their hand and talk to them and take care of my unfinished business. There's no chance to finish your unfinished business before you die or with the patient who dies or whoever. So it makes it, you know, 10 times harder. You know, that's, I'm doing a lot of work where I'm living. Um, How do we bring back respect into death now, having gone through this chaos and bewilderment and how do we, how do we actually find a way to clear away the chaos what the dying process is really about, and also what grief and loss is about. I think that's more complicated now. My one hope is that the word death has become more normal in our conversations. Yeah, sometimes it takes a shock, and then we have to process that. And yeah. you know, people talk about it, not necessarily in a healthy way these days, but there is more talk about it. But mm. there needs to be you know, more people like you who are spreading healthy messages versus the people who are sensationalizing, you know, the fear mongers. Is your photography separate from the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross work that you do, or does it sort of merge? It kind of both. <laughs> it's separate. Uh, I was a commercial photographer for 25 years. Uh, but I find when I go down to a place like uh, in Japan, I used to do this deal with this group that I would go give three lectures on my mom and then they would set up uh, an exhibit of my work. <clears throat> and then the people from my speeches came to the exhibit and they say, oh, Ken, you know, really your photographs are like, they just represent life and spirituality. And you can see there's something about like life. You just like enjoying life so much you can see in your photographs. So I put together a little journal of my photographs of life done to my mother's quotes on death like a mother-son life-death journal, you know? So I do see like an interesting symbiotic relationship Mm. between the photographs expressing my joy of life and, you know, also showing us that life, you know, is Mm. passing or all in passage. And we should enjoy like every one of these beautiful moments are all around us. If we choose to look, there's beauty everywhere, even in my home and, and the shadows coming through the windows. And I see... There's so much beauty. It's incredible if you open your eyes. And when you think about your own death at some point, what happens for you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really care. <laughs> so, you don't care? I mean, I don't want a painful death, but I mean, you know, as long as 
I will have, you know, lived that life in which I'm living, then yeah, great. You know, like, wow, lucky me. Like my mother says, like your graduations, like, wow, it'll be like me crossing the finish line. I had the most amazing life. I lived the dream. That was Ken Ross. If you'd like to find out more about Ken and the Elizabeth Cooper Ross Foundation, please go to ekrfoundation.org. My next guest is Mandy Priest, a sole midwife and communications trainer who won the Princess Royal Training Award for initiating a bedside companion scheme for an NHS palliative care unit. Everybody should have the opportunity to volunteer with people at end of life because boy does it change your perspective on how to live. You've been listening to Embracing Your Mortality and I look forward to you joining me again next time. In the meantime, here's to us all living more consciously for a better world. The Embracing Your Mortality podcast was researched and recorded by Sue Brain and produced and edited by the Podcast Den. 